Hello everybody and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me Jean-Paul Wright. A huge shout out, a big shout out to our wonderful podcast sponsors who have been so supportive for the past six years and 288 pods. TJ Flutes. You can show them some flute love on Instagram at TJ Flutes, on Facebook at Trevor James Flutes and on the web at tjflutes.com. I'm currently standing or cowering underneath a tree in London's Hyde Park. It's a really hot late September morning and I'm just off to meet at Marble Arch. For those of you who know London, that's right at the end of the Oxford Street, the big shopping road, to meet the guest for this week, Joshua Johnson, social media influencer, multi-instrumentalist, and somebody that has been requested by people following a question I put out on socials a few weeks ago, which was, who would you like to return as a guest on the podcasts? So I'm just about to leave my rather uh, shady retreat underneath this tree and head back over Hyde Park to meet Josh at Marble Arch Tube Station. And from there, we will then come straight back and have a lovely warm walk through the park where I will talk about all things flutes and everything flute related actually, because it's Josh. So I'll come back to you in a minute. Everything I, I shoot now, in the back of my mind, I'm like, could I print and frame this? So I try to shoot everything in like enough of a resolution to get it printed. Because I do eventually want to, I want to get a bunch of this stuff printed for my own house. I'm going to revive my stupid little merch shop bullshit at some point. Um, and I want to do a book. Yeah, do an e-book. Absolutely. Well, I want to do like a coffee table book of pictures. Yeah, a big one. I mean, I, six people in the whole world maybe will ever buy one, but like just to have one, you're like, I did a book. Like a big Tashin sumo. Exactly. Exactly like a Tashin or like a Rizzoli or something. Like. So I've got the Tashin sumo Hockney, signed by Hockney. Wow. But it's so big, it's still in the box it mm. came Yeah, well, in that's the sort of what you do with books like that, you know. No. Unless you have a 5,000 square meter house and you've got a room <laughs> where you can just sort of prop it up on a table slightly open. Like a religious triptych or something. <laughs> no, it won't be that big. But I mean, I, there, I have taken some photos over the last couple of years that even I think are really magnificent. But interesting, some of the best pictures when you post them on socials don't always get the best response. Correct. I mean, that Cresta one that you've, that's gone viral. It's terrible. It's, it's, not, terrible. it's not the best picture you've ever taken. No, I was holding it over the edge of the table because like, I was trying to get something out of the shot. So I was holding it with this hand. I had my phone in this hand and I had my, my um, elbow on someone's shoulder to like steady it. So I was holding the flute like this, heavy, trying to get a picture of it. And it has, it's insane. I'm, it's, it's I think 10,000 something this morning. <laughs> it's not a good picture. Whereas like pictures that I like spend 15 minutes just composing the shot on, I mean, sometimes they do well, but nothing. I have never in my life taken anything that has gone as crazy as that Cresta picture. And that goes against the Instagram algorithm, the new changes, which says, according to Maziri, the CEO, that the algorithm wants to be able to recognize what the image or the video is about mm. and then recommend it to the people that are interested in it. Right. Saying that, unless you're a flute player, you don't know what those two keys are. Right. So the algorithm has picked it up and shoved it around. Yeah. So that is... Yeah. It's interesting. I think it's just because it's gold and it's... Yeah. I, think it's I think it's going to people who look at jewellery. Oh, got you. Like, people whose feeds are sort of like, you know, gold, diamonds, whatever. I don't hashtag anymore. They don't do anything now. I was, the was, I think it was last year when Adam Masari did his, like, New Year at Instagram thing. Um, you know, he was like, we changed things and hashtags are no longer going to be as necessary as they used to be. If the content's good, the algorithm will pick it up. Because yeah. what's more important is the description. Yes, because that's got to match the imagery. Yes, and, and, but, but the algorithm now reads the caption like it would ha Like, if the word gold is in the caption, you don't need the hashtag, because it'll oh, still... Yes. If you search for gold flute, it'll still come up. Now, and I would totally endorse that, because I was almost... I think I was probably shadow banned a few weeks ago, in that I checked the hashtags that I put up on a post, 
and it didn't appear on the hashtag. And then I'm thinking, how many people actually search by hashtags? They don't Nobody. because they're using, they're using it as a search engine. They are typing in, playing the flute, playing gap the gap flute. Yep. And the algorithm is just picking up, okay, flute, uh, what, what we've got in the description, playing the flute. Yeah. 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 So basically they have turned the entire post into a hashtag, so you don't need to use them anymore. No. It's just a waste of space. Well, that's the, my next week. I'm, I'm abandoning, abandoning hashtags to see where do, I end Do it up. as an experiment for like a week or so, and I promise you, you, you might actually see an uptick in engagement. Because I, you know, I was doing the old school rules. I used exactly 30, yep. between 25 and 30. Yeah. You know, some really general ones like flute, and then super specific ones, you know. But when I stopped using them all together, there was no change at all. And then it actually got a little better. So I was like, okay, well. Interesting. Saves me 10 minutes of copying, pasting, and editing. This is an interesting podcast. Um, <laughs> Josh, thank you for joining me today. We're actually walking through the beautiful Hyde Park in London, aren't we? And you have, it's not a triple shot, it's a quadruple shot. Oh, thank God. It's a quadruple shot latte with oat latte. It's not even sort of touching Well, this has got to be a very exciting podcast then, isn't it? <laughs> and it's a beautiful day. I've been, I have to hold my hands up, I've been half an hour late due yep. to apparently someone on the line outside London Bridge causing havoc. So. Uh, as they do. But he said he's collar felt, apparently, by the police. Excellent. So, uh, so yeah, we've decided to walk in this beautiful park. Now, having lived in New York and having lived in London, New York has the beautiful Central Park and we have Hyde Park. Now, I'm not asking you to compare them. Okay. Well, yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't really a comparison for me, Hyde Park, all the way. Because, sure, New York has Central Park. And Central Park is great, I guess. Um, but, you know, there's just something about Hyde Park. And Hyde Park isn't even the biggest park. You know, then we've got Hampstead Heath, which makes Hyde Park sort of look like Grandma's Garden. <laughs> and I live, I'm very lucky that I live equidistantly between two of my favorite parks in the entire city, Hyde Park and Holland Park which is nowhere near as large, but it's very charming. And it's very exclusive. People don't know about Holland Park. They it's don't, and I would of... like to keep it that way, sweetie, darling. And the roads, the roads are, that go on to it, they, they start about 15 million pounds, don't they? The big houses. Oh God, yeah. Jesus, it is some of the most exclusive real estate uh, in the entire city. The Beckhams live on Holland Park, for example. They're my neighbors. <laughs> yes. Um, but it is, it's really lovely. The parks, and there's just something different about the parks in London. I don't know, it's probably because they're in London and not New York, and so there aren't people shooting each other and whatever it is that happens in America these days. I'm very excessively pro-London, as we all know. So it's, this is podcast 288, oh and God. you have... The only reason you're on again is that people have asked. Oh, well, thank you, people. Yeah. Um... So this is the fourth time. God, Most people is, only get it? twice. Aww. This is the fourth time. And I've asked, I put it out to a general populace. Oh. I've sent questions. So those who follow you, and you have a, lot, you have a big following, because you are an influencer. Kind of. And Micro. No. Mini. Mini. Mini influencer. Mini. It depends what you... Because if you're listening and you don't follow me, please get me to 10K. I'm so close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then you can... You i got to catch up with Stephen Clark. And then, um, so I've asked them. Thing is, influencers, you can be an influencer at 1,000 or 2,000 if, if your coverage, if you're engaging all those people. Right. Numbers, followers are nothing. It's all about engagement, isn't it? Right. And I, this, this is super nerdy, but I actually just ran my engagement numbers last night. And Instagram considers anything between 2 and 3% engagement rate yes. to be quite good. Oh, okay. At least before, so that's... Um, well, who knows what Instagram's doing anymore. Um, mine, last night, when I... And I, I was Social Blade, so who knows how accurate it is. 6.7%. Uh, oh, gosh, I'm not that. No. Well, it's all probably because of that photograph we were just talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I've put... Not my best work, guys. But it is a fascinating picture. We will cover that a bit later, because... I've put it out, as you would expect, because, and I know you don't mind me, because you've already referenced it, you are a nerd, 
Oh, God, yes. Yeah. I don't uh, not like that. I love being called a nerd because it's very true. Yeah, it is. And it's almost, you come across a new flute somewhere. Would Josh have seen that before you? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, where's Wally? It's, what would Josh think? <laughs> so WWJD, what would Josh do? <laughs> yeah, we don't even hashtag that now, do we? No, sure don't. So we've, we've got some questions. Okay, wow. Um, and I did say we will be walking, if we can find a seat. Oh, it's beautiful this well, day, isn't it? I think we have popped into the bench-free wild zone of Hyde Park. First question, because we better get started, haven't we? Yes. Over all the years, you have been wandering around, through, under, and inside the flute world. What has been the most special flute you've ever played? Oh, God. I knew this question. As soon as you said you were gonna, you were you gathered questions. That is such a hard question for me to answer because I have played so many really, <laughs> really fantastic flutes. Okay, if we're talking about special flutes in terms of just being very uh, sort of monumental in my life in yes. some way, the very first Sankyo flute I ever played. Because that was the flute that, first of all, made me fall in love with Sankyo flutes. And as we all know now, 20 years later, that's kind of my thing. Um, but also, it was the first time I ever played a flute that made me believe I could actually play the flute. Because I didn't, before, the instrument I was on before that, you know, I just, I hated my sound. I, I hated my articulation. I just thought, well, I'm never going to be a good flute player. And that's just that. And I should just be a clarinet player. But then I played a Sankyo. And I was like, oh, wait. I have a sound. So that one, um, if you're talking about sort of special flutes, the most special flute I've ever played, uh, sort of uh, that the general public might care about, probably, probably, pro oh God, probably honestly that John Lunn, that 18K John Lunn that Lizzo has now. Um, and it wasn't special necessarily because it was a fantastic flute, because no, I, I tried spoiler it. alert, dear reader, it is not. But the craftsmanship yeah. in that instrument is unparalleled. I mean, there's just because there's so much of it, there's so much going on. So that was a very cool instrument. Um, I mean, there's, I, could, I could name 10, but if you want one, it's that one. But you've played Wibs as well, haven't you? I have played quite a lot of Wibs flutes very recently, actually. Um, there was a particular Louis Lott um, that apparently was his favorite. I guess he called it, oh, what did he call it? Frankenstein or something. Um, that was really, really nice. I mean, it looked like it had been through a house fire. Yes, was, which is what he does. It was black and, you know. Had he, was any holes drilled in it or? Um, it had been extensively rejuved um, several times by the look of some of the patches. <laughs> uh, but it was great. I mean, the, the quality of the sound was incredible. I played, oh gosh, a badger a few years ago that was like the... I think the very first metal flute ever made with an extended foot joint. It was a low B flat foot, which was quite cool. Some seats around here, but I'll just wander around this bit. Yeah. Sorry, Badger. Yes. Now that is a name I've never heard of apart from really? furry animals. But he was an American flute maker in the late 19th century. He did some very cool things. Uh, I believe Flute Center actually has a B flat foot Badger for sale right now. Badger, that's a new one. There you go. I'm very into vintage flutes lately for some reason. Okay. I might uh, just pull a Gary Shocker and start playing Louis Lotz in 1947 Haynes. Ooh. <laughs> I just don't see that as being you. No, I do. Right. I like a big honker. <laughs> Those that know Josh will know where he's going with that one. Right. <laughs> How very dire. Another question here. What's the most expensive flute you've ever played? The most expensive flute I have ever played in my life was a 24 karat gold Sankyo with a solid 14 karat gold mech, fully engraved uh, B-foot. And it was, the retail price on that instrument would be somewhere around 145 or $150,000 right now, I believe. Yeah, and that's not the most expensive flute you can even get because Sankyo also will do you a 24 karat gold flute with a solid 18K mechanism. But I've never played one. Um, so the most expensive flute I've ever played was that 24K, 14K Sankyo. And the weight? It was not light. It was, <laughs> it was not a light flute at all. Um, I've also played a couple platinum flutes that were probably quite up there. 
Um, I very recently, at the, the National Fruit Association Convention 2023, uh, played not one, but two of the new Miyazawa Crestas in mm -hmm. solid platinum. One of which belonged to our dear friend and favorite person, Mihi Kim. Yeah, lovely, lovely. She lovely. let me play her flute. It was a very special moment in my life. That was the most special flute I've ever played. Mihi, if you're listening. Um, those also are extremely not cheap, shall we no. say. Yeah, she looked precious. She, will, she lets people play them, doesn't she? She's very sweet, yes. She's kind of like the Yo-Yo Ma of the flute. Oh, yeah, she's lovely. Because Yo-Yo Ma's very, he's very well known for just sort of letting anyone play his Stradivari or Cornary cellos. Like, Really? Yeah, yeah. Like when he, because he teaches a lot of kids, he works with kids a lot, um, and he's he's always let people try his cellos. Very nice. Ooh. I mean, he left it in a cab once in New York, so I don't. <laughs> I don't imagine he's terribly precious about them either. <laughs> but yes, me, he's wonderful. Me, he, if you're listening, shoot them. So this this leads quite nicely into the next question. Who should flute players be listening to at this moment? Oh my God, we don't have enough time in this podcast I know, for that. But this is going to put you on the spot because it is. Well, because this is not rehearsed. Um, <laughs> if I forget anyone, it is not personal. Okay. Well, since we're talking about Mihi, obviously she brings something very special to flute playing. Um, she has a technique that is just. <laughs> I mean, when she plays, she can play anything, but like there, it's like her fingers each have tiny little like servo motors in them <laughs> and she just can do absolutely anything. But she also plays with this real like intensity and there's, there's just something about the sound that she makes that is mind blowing. So definitely Mihi. Um, also, it gives you a really great idea of what people talk about when they talk about the sound of a platinum flute because she plays platinum to its full potential which not a lot of people do. But I don't think. always hear platinum when I'm listening to her, which is interesting. It's because she's so good at it. <laughs> because you get, one of the, I guess, common misconceptions about platinum, right, is that it's, you can't change the color, it's too yeah. strident. She doesn't have that problem at all. So there's that. Um, <clears throat> who else should people listen to? Obviously, people should be listening to Stephen Clark, mm -hmm. incredible player. Dr. Stephen Clark. Dr. Stephen Clark, yes, we're very proud of you, Stephen. Sorry, I've just inhaled a, uh, a fly. pollen or something. Um, God, who am I listening to right now? There, there are so many. I mean, I obviously we're all listening to Pahud and Boryakov and you know the the, the modern day demigods. Um, I am I am very much into sort of people like Ram Paul and Marion. Yeah. You know, a lot of those um, '80s Galway recordings are really incredible. Yes. But current, you want current people. Um, you know who I'm obsessed with? I'm obsessed with Ulla Milman. You've mentioned this before. Oh God, she's just, I mean, there's nothing she can't do. And her sound is like someone just pouring warm chocolate all over you in like a spot. Or so. It's just incredible. And it doesn't matter what she plays. She's on a Haynes now, but yeah. before that she was on a gold Yamaha, before that a platinum Miyazawa. And she still has always had just the most gorgeous sound. Um, Emily Bynan also. Yeah. I would lay down in front of a garbage truck for Emily Bynan. I, I, her sound is just unreal. And the artistry with which she plays. I mean, she, she and Ula, to me, sort of embody the ultimate orchestral flute players. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're looking for soloists, obviously we have to, we have to give a shout to our dear girl Jazz. Uh -huh. Jasmine Choi. Miss Choi. Um, obviously just an absolute monster player. Quite sensitive in her playing, which I like. Mm. Um, mm, who else? Oh, Sebastian Jaco. It's yeah. another, just, oh, Yubin Kim, superstar. God, there's so, I mean, everyone, everyone's very good now, aren't they? There's a seat in the park. There are. So leading on to another question, which is, and is there a goat in flute playing? Um, it's an acronym, everybody. Greatest of all yes. time. Yes, greatest of all time. And, that, and that, this is a hard one, isn't it? Because you well, know, it is a hard one because if you're if you're you know bringing all time into it, we have to consider people like Baker and yeah. Rampal yes. and Taffanel and Gobert, you know, and Moise and Moise yeah. and Wib and Jimmy, Jimmy and Sir James Galway, 
sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry, yes. Lady Jeannie. <laughs> you know, so, oh gosh, I don't know, but no, there isn't. There is no one flute player that is the goat because that would just be silly. <laughs> you know, because, because it's, not, it's not a measurable activity. You know what I mean? It's music, it's art, it is so subjective. You could not possibly ever say, there is one person who has done this better than all the rest. And do you know what's sad about that? That list, it's all men. Yeah. It's sad, isn't it? It is. But, you know, so let's, so let's, let's fix that. Dory O'Dwyer. Yes. Um, absolutely shocking. Elaine Schaefer. So Elaine Schaefer was an American player who was, I mean, a huge orchestral trailblazer on the East Coast, but she also, perhaps, maybe even more famously, was the person who uh, ended up with Kincaid's Platinum Powell number 365. Oh, she ended up with that? Yeah. Uh, she's no longer with us, sadly, so rip Elaine, but she was incredible. Oh my God, Paula Robeson. Yes. Oh, heavens to Betsy, Paula Robeson. What a player, and what a person. Do you know Paula? I've done a class with Paula years and years ago. She might be the nicest, funniest, coolest, sweetest, most sort of spiritually generous person I've ever met in my entire life. She's very vibrant in front. She of... has the life force of 70 people. Yeah. <laughs> She's amazing. It's Paula. Um, oh, God, so many. I'm trying to think of... The thing is that there are so many incredible female flute players in the, in the early, mid-20th century that we've never heard of. Yes. You know, which is quite sad. So if you guys actually have any suggestions of of female goats to add to the zoo, let us know. Um, I mean, nowadays there's, you know, quite a lot of exceptional female flute talent out there. We've talked about quite a lot of it. I don't know, I, you know who's the goat? Anyone that can play the Rodrigo and not sweat. That's who's the goat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I open it, cry, and then leave the house is what I do. So. Yeah, even the middle movement, it starts off and it's so beautiful. Oh, and then, then it, it just, just turns into absolute noodle garbage. I mean, I love it, but... Although, there's a video of me playing some of the middle movement on my Instagram, and one person certainly did not love it. JJ93 Stark, if you're listening. I don't know why you followed me back, but welcome. Look forward to your commentary on my playing again. <laughs> and whatever, it's fine. It's a lovely, the, the theme of the second movement of the Rodrigo is stunning, but no, as a whole, the concerto just makes me, makes me really, really sad. Because I'll never play it. It's so hard. Let's play the first 32 bars, the second movement, and great, I used to try the first, first Great movement. double tonguing exercise, those first two bars. The first movement. No more TNG, just play the first two bars of Rodrigo. There's <laughs> <laughs> your day sorted. Well, I don't think you can answer this, because if you, could, if you could choose your top five flute players in any order, in any era, who would they be? Oh. And in what order? Oh, that's actually really hard, because I... So many of my friends are like top flute players. And so I'm going to have to separate out like my feelings of friendship for Absolutely. 75 people <laughs> um, of all time. That makes it easier because there's no universe in which I don't have Alain Marion in the number one spot on that list. His sound is what lives in my head every minute of every day. And he is very, very largely why I gave Sankyo flutes a try. 22 years ago, uh, because he, as, for those of you who are listening who don't know, Alain Marion was um, a flute player who, he was professor at the Paris Conservatoire, um, and he played Sankyo flutes before just about anyone else. I think he bought his first one in 1978, and he was the one that uh, gave them the idea of doing a 24K. So he played an, an all 18 karat body with the 24 karat MRS one head joint, and his sound was just, oh. okay, so Marion number one. Um, in any order, let's, but he's number one. <laughs> so the, the other four in no particular order, Paula Robeson, um, Wibb, actually. Ooh, you know, I'm gonna have to say Mr. Mr. Sir Galway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For many, many, many reasons. Absolutely. And what are we up to, four? Is that four? Oh, gosh. <sighs> oh, this is so hard, this is so hard. Are you gonna have to put Moise in just to? No, I'm gonna say Jasmine. Yeah. Yeah, but you and Jasmine go back so long. I know, but also, even if I had never met her in my life, I would still listen to every album she's ever recorded yeah. multiple times a day. <laughs> Just a quick thing on Marion. I was at one of the French flute conventions many, many years ago, and Marion was, well, he's been dead a long time, but it shows how long ago it was, and he was doing the Ebert. Mm. I think I've told you before, in the middle movement, it was just stunning. And then he took it up the octave. 
you know the bit when it goes the refrain where it goes da 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 and he took it up C C sharp C and it was just like this beautiful sort of whisper there was nothing and of course with that embouchure he had there was, no, there was nothing changed or seemed to change right and he had this sort of really lazy posture but it just sung and that's why he's number one on my list sir <laughs> <laughs> Alain Marion, Craig. Alain Marion, get into it, as the kids say. <laughs> there's a real, there's, we could we could talk for hours on this. <laughs> I don't know if we should even start. <laughs> well, you're you're a, quite a Marion fan as well. A person just also, do you know, I didn't put names on this. Let's talk vibrato. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Um, let's talk vibrato. God, people get so upset about other people's vibrato, don't, don't they? Don't they just? People get really upset about other people's everything. Like, worry about yourself, kid. Um, okay, so honestly, I think, was it, was it Yasha Heifetz who said putting vibrato on every note is like putting ketchup on every bit of food you eat? Mm-hmm. Don't do it. I don't, care, I don't care if you have a fast vibrato or a slow vibrato or a wide vibrato. Or no, no one gives an entire flying, you know. Just use it tastefully. That's all I have to say about vibrato. I don't care what it sounds like. I have personal preferences. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that they're correct. I personally like a shallow, shimmery vibrato. I don't like a big, wide, sort of wow, wow, opera wow, wow, singery wow, wow. vibrato. Yeah. But a lot of people make that work. Uh, just use it correctly. It's a, it's a tool. It's an expressive device. It's color. It is not the foundation of making a sound. And I think so many people rely on vibrato to get them through insecurities about pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the hardest things you can ever ask a flute player to do is to play something entirely straight tone. Because it's terrifying. Because <laughs> you, you have to think about being in tune and you have to think about your sound all the time. Whereas if you rely on vibrato, uh, you can sort of use that to round things off and to finish phrases and to start things. Whereas if you take all the vibrato out, you have to do everything correctly. You have to, to play the f- flute properly and vibrato vibrato can be a crutch I think for a lot of people and I'm certainly guilty of it I'm now just in my 40s sort of realizing that I can I can vary it and I don't have to use it all the time and it's it's not you know it's not the thing that your sound has to rest on but it's a process isn't it JP playing the flute it's a lifelong endeavor and we're all just learning from each other yes we are and what's interesting is you can tell a flute player an audio recording by the, the vibrato, yeah. Like I mean, James I think Goy obviously the most famous example of that is... James Goy. Yes, Sir, Sir James. Um, but look, it, it's his thing. It's, it's his sound. Streisand, Barbara Streisand. Exactly. You, you can it's, tell that vibrato. Pavarotti, you can tell the vibrato. Yeah. And it's, look, if, you've, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know? <laughs> if it works for you. It's, it's how I feel about fingerings. If it works for you, literally do not give a single shred of care when anyone else thinks. I'm trying so hard not to swear, JP, you have no idea. I'm like, <laughs> there's a blood vessel in my head that's about to explode. Um, yeah, just, you know, whatever works for you. Vibrato, uh, whatever. I mean, you know, don't use it at all, I don't care. Play play Baroque music on a, on a no-key flute and don't ever use it, or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I no, don't you care. Can't, you can't swear on this one. This is not Gareth Houston's. No, exactly, <laughs> Inline G exactly, podcast. Exactly. And if you haven't listened to it, everybody, it it's is. It's very funny. He it, does come after me a lot, though, even though he doesn't realize that he's personally attacking me every minute of every day. I, I, he just... It's <laughs> kidding. He's a mate. We're, we're, I'm, I'm not actually being serious. It's the podcast, if I was more intelligent, much younger, and mm. as quick-witted as him. No. Called the Inline G podcast. If you haven't heard it and you just want to be entertained. It's got some great stuff in. It does. It I will say, he says the things that we all want to say, but are too afraid of people not liking us <laughs> on social media. Yeah, he I mean, just does not give a single fudge. No, of course we won't go there about flute for him or anything else online. I can't. Look, I, look, I'm, oh, please don't get me started. Please don't get but me started. He went in. He sort of didn't care. And he just he, went he absolutely did not care. Yeah. He'd had a few beers as he was doing. Yeah. Well, that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Let's have a couple drinks. Right, let's move on. Right, this one. You've just come back from the NFA. I have. Well, a ish. few weeks ago, yeah. ish. Why should people bother to go to flute conventions, is the question. Because there is no other circumstance in your life throughout the rest of the year where you will be entirely, completely surrounded by people who love the same thing you do. 
it's just the most incredible social bonding, professional networking experience. Like to be surrounded by thousands of people who love the flute as much as you do. It's, it's very special. And also you have access to masterclasses and to performances by the world's greatest flute players live in person in your actual face, not just on YouTube, you know what I mean? And the exhibit hall. Where else would you have the chance with absolutely no obligation whatsoever to walk around and try solid 20 karat and gold and platinum and wood flutes for free and actually be able to, to see what's on the market, compare things, you know. I mean, it's, the exhibit hall alone is why you should go to NFA. <laughs> and if, if you do have idols, I mean, I don't, but if you do have sort of people that you admire, they just walk around and they're quite yes. happy to have well, because selfies. And NFA is a great place to, to sort of be reminded that everyone is just a person, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, you might see Jasmine just sort of in a corner somewhere trying out head joints or, you know, Tamara McGill walking around, like, looking at piccolos. Like, you just, who knows who you'll see? I mean, I have, you know, I, I think a lot of people think of me as... I don't know, maybe unflappable. And I know, of course, I know a lot of great flute players, but I get really, really starstruck sometimes. Really? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's by people I already know. <laughs> it, 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 it happens to me every time I see Mihi. Um, and it also happens to be at NFA with Carla Reese. Carla, now that is really interesting. Oh my God, I love her. <laughs> Just what a, what a goddess. And, you know, you all know that I am extraordinarily partial to the alto flute. Yeah, I think most people probably know that by now. Yes, um, my beautiful TJ alto flute. And Carla Reese is pretty much the reigning goddess of the alto flute on planet Earth. Yeah. So, and she's really nice. She's really, really, really nice. Yeah, almost, yeah. Another, so, one, another one to dislike. There's a brilliant player and he's just a lovely Also very person. sweet. Yeah, yeah. Not a bad thing to say about Carla Reese at all. Yeah, I, I, I saw her quite a few times. I was always like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's good, to, it's good to not be too jaded in life. Like, it's nice to still feel like a, a silly seven-year-old every once in a while. Well, I don't think that's hard for you, Josh. So, right, here we go. You're known as being a seriously talented multi-instrumentalist. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And so you have knowledge and experience of frequenting other niche worlds like the clarinet or oboe or bassoon. Which one is the most geeky? Is the most geeky? geeky yeah. Oh God, oboes. Well, double reeds in general, but particularly the oboe. Oh my God, oboe players. <laughs> <laughs> Love them. Um, playing principal oboe this weekend in the concert. Principal you, oboe I've and Cor Anglais in, noticed, yes. in Kent with an orchestra in Broad Stairs. Lovely place, Broad Stairs. Um, oh my God, oboe players. I mean, if you think flute players will, will go at each other over head joints, mm -hmm put two oboe players in a room and give them two different styles of staples and tell them one's better than the other. And God, you know, I mean, but like, what can you expect of, of a, a sort of a genre of human whose entire career is predicated on how good they are at locking themselves away in a room and whittling tiny pieces of wood together <laughs> on a tiny metal tube? Like, that takes a certain kind of person, and I think that produces a certain kind of mental illness. <laughs> also, the oboe is just hard. It's a weird, awful, terrible, disgusting, monstrous instrument that can be made. It's so beautiful, but, God, it's hard. I do not. I don't care for the oboe. <clears throat> I, at one point, was extremely good at it. I am no longer. I'm, I'm working on getting some of that back, but it's hard. It's just, it's physically painful, first of all. I don't think you realize how much it hurts to play the oboe. Um, but you know, oboes are dorks. And oboes also are made by a lot of people. There's a lot of oboe makers. Not as many as flute makers, but um, I wrote an article about oboe makers and it just sort of, it went insane a few years ago. <clears throat> but there's a lot, there's really a lot of oboe makers out there. And the oboe conventions, the IDRS, Double Reed Convention, is very much like NFA, where there are just hundreds or even thousands of instruments to walk around and try and, you know, 15 different kinds of woods and, you know, gold keys and platinum keys and just all sorts of amazing things. Yeah, geeky, oboe, very geeky, so geeky. What's the hardest, oboe or bassoon? Oh, oboe. Really? Because I thought oh, God, bassoon I love... with all those... The bassoon thumb keys are not, um, not great. And they in no way makes sense. There's nothing sensible <laughs> about playing the bassoon at all. But I love the bassoon. I've, I've played the bassoon longer than just about anything else. Um, 
and I don't find it difficult. I find that the bassoon is a very natural thing for me. Voicing the bassoon is very natural for me. Um, and I think a lot of that is because the range of the bassoon and the timbre of the bassoon is very closely aligned to my own voice. So I just like it's just very easy for me to play the bassoon because I don't have to work very hard at voicing it. And the sound it makes is just incredible. And the reed is bigger. So you have there's just there's just so much margin for error and horror in the oboe because everything is so tiny. It's like the piccolo. <laughs> it's so tiny and therefore every every microscopic change can ruin your entire day. Whereas the bassoon is just sort of, you know, a lovely clown that so, would you, would you think that playing, I mean, t double reeds aside and the funny mouth positioning, you're using the chamber in your in your jaw a lot playing these uh, the reed instruments. Do you do you think that that contributes <clears throat> to your flute sound? Oh, absolutely, for sure. And I think it also is a big reason why I prefer to play the larger flutes, um, because I'm I'm very used to using all of the resonant space in my skull. And, you know, and my throat as well, um, to to make these these big beefy instruments sound, you know, big and beefy, or to sort of tame the oboe into something pleasant. <clears throat> and I think that 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 tendency to to always use my throat or the cavity in my mouth or my nasal cavity even um, to voice is something that that contributes very much to my flute sound, and also why I think I sound a little bit different than a lot of, of flute players. You do, yeah. I think, I, I think in general, I mean, I don't really, I no longer like to use the words light and dark because they don't actually mean anything, really. But um, I do think I have a significantly darker sound than a lot of people. Um, and I think it's just because I try to play everything like it's a, a, an English horn or a bassoon. Like, I, I use that really open voicing in the, in the back of the, of the mouth to... To sort of, I kind of, in my head, the image is that the sound swirls around in my mouth before it comes out. And so everything, I try to have just a big, wide sound. And I, think, I think the biggest compliment is for someone to say that you're playing, you're sounding like a clarinet as a flute player. You know, you have that woody... I will tell you, Cat uh, Ryan, if you're listening, is Cat Ryan is, yeah. is throwing things at the wall right now and screaming, absolutely not, you wanker. Cat <laughs> hates the clarinet. <laughs> yeah, she does. She does. Um, but there's something very, very warm about the sound of the clarinet, if you play it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a caveat. But... There's always a caveat. Uh, oh, God. This, the clarinet can be an absolute weapon of mass destruction in the, in the wrong hands. Yeah, that's why we shouldn't really be tuning up to the oboe, really, should we? What note do you tune up to? Do you tune up to A, because we've always tuned up to A, because I was speaking to Bill Dowdle, and Wib always used to tune to D, low D. Hmm, well, that makes sense, because the scale of the flute is built on D. Yeah. I tune to A and D. I usually to A, D, sometimes, depends on what I'm playing. Um, I also tune a lot to E. I try to get the octave, the E octaves okay. pulled together, because, if, you know, if you can do that, everything else will fall into place. If that high E is working, then you're probably not going to have many other... Yes, so if issues. you tune to low D, a lot of flutes, all these little issues come out because... Yeah, because the scales are all so different and they're yeah. all predicated on making that D sort of somehow come into line with the Ds above it because yeah. those octaves are really difficult to pull together because physics. Yes. Stay in school, kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. What has been the most beneficial flute playing or practice advice that you've ever been given? Uh, do it. Just practice. Because we all have days where you just absolutely can't be bothered and you, you would rather do anything. Just do it. Practice. You will always feel better if you force yourself to do it. Just get it out of the way because the second you start, all of the, all of the sort of trepidation is gone and you enjoy it. Um, there were many times when I was like, no, I'm not going to practice today. And you lose, so, by having inconsistent practice, you lose so much of the progress that you have made. So the best practice advice I have ever gotten was just practice. Even if you, like, if you have no time, playing is better than not playing, right? So picking up your flute for five minutes and playing a couple of scales and maybe a couple long tones, if you have no time at all, play octaves, play long tone octaves, and then go about your day, you know, go to that meeting or whatever. But playing is better than not playing because at least you did something that day and, and there's a, you have contributed ever so slightly to your muscle memory. Because if you don't do it, 
it's real. It's hard to come back. Heifetz, I believe, once said, you know, if I don't practice for a day, I know it. If I don't practice for two days, my accompanist knows it. If I don't practice for three days, the world knows it. Because, <laughs> I mean, you got to keep on it, you know? I mean, flute players, it's the sound that goes first, isn't it? Yeah. It's not the facility. Yeah, no, because, I mean, you can pick up the flute after 20 years and yeah. still the fingers will still be there, but your face, you know, because we don't have reeds, right? So, you know, because reed players are always screaming about, oh, it's my reed, it's my reed, but it's your face. So, like, you know, say you had a, you tied one on the night before, you had a, you know, night down the pub with the lads, uh, and you wake up and you're super dehydrated and your lips are swollen and cracked. You're not going to have a great day. But the next day, you know, you drank a lot of water, you got to bed early, you feel great. Completely different. Like, our, our bodies change from day to day. It's like, it's like being a singer. Your body is the instrument. Mm. You, the yeah. flute is not the instrument. The flute is, is the sort of final step in getting the sound out. But without, without you, there's nothing that's happening. And so if your lips, if your embouchure, if the, if the muscle tone in your face, if, if for some reason you're feeling very weak, if you're ill or perhaps something, you know, it's going to be different. So you have to, consistency is the only way to sort of override all of those changes that happen in their bodies every single day and, and eventually find a way to get a baseline so that you know how to navigate when things feel different or don't feel great. Because the greatest professional players all also have bad days. Everyone has bad days. But I think the difference between someone like a Jasmine Choi or a Pahood, you know, and me is that their worst day is better than the best day I'll ever have because they have, they have gotten themselves to a point where they might know they're struggling, but you never will. I like the analogy with singers, that flute players are just singers. Yeah. Well, because it's, I mean, you know, how many flute teachers make singer analogies when, you know, during your lessons? But it's true, because we're not, the instrument isn't doing anything. With reed instruments, right, there's a, a closed system that provides resistance. Mm -hmm. The flute doesn't do that. It's a tube with some holes in it. Like, you have to do, it doesn't help you in any way. You have to do all the work. You are the reed. So, and I, I get the voice analogy, and you're right, teachers in cl classes and master classes are always talking about how singers would do it. But they don't actually get the person to put the flute down and then sing. Some people note. do. I will tell you who does that is Paula Robeson, and it is a joyous thing to watch. Um, I would go to Boston quite frequently because I used to perform in Manchester, New Hampshire a lot, and it's right outside of Boston. Um, and when I had time, you know, and if she was, she was up for it, I would stomp by New England Conservatory and I would drop in on, on Paula's studio classes because she, she's very into that. She loves having visitors. Um, I will never forget the day that I got pulled up to the front to dramatically recite the text of a poem while she played Mozart in the background. Um, but, oh, they sing in every lesson. No flute. Just because we use air the same way. Yes, exactly. And we breathe, if we breathe like singers, because singers have a different way of breathing, yes. don't they? Breathing through your nose is so much more important than mouth. Yes, but also the way you engage yeah. your core and the, the, the way you engage your lungs. It's, it's exactly the same as a singer. And you don't have to be able to sing, but I, I think that it's important that we all do sing. You know, maybe not in front of people, but... Mm -hmm. At least it gives you a feel for what should be going on in your body. And then, you know, sing, you know, try to sort of belt one out and then play. And, and I, I think that you will see that there's, you'll feel the connection, but also your playing will probably sound a little better. You get the nice little vibration in the tube, don't you? Yes, exactly. Right, we're nearly at the end, good, good, good man. I'm so, we're sat on a bench, say, in Hyde Park, and you've got the sun on your face, haven't you? I do apologize. It's all right. Do you feel that flute players are, in the main, far too serious? Mm, no, I don't, actually. I think that the, the sour apples are actually the exception. I think the people who are critical of everyone's vibrato and the angle they play at and their embouchure, and I think those are not the majority, you know. And, and I think that if, if that is your impression of flute players, go to NFA. Yeah. Meet two to 4,000 flute players, and you'll see that flute players actually, I think, are the chillest, coolest, most relaxed classical musicians. Nice short answer, I like those. So for our listeners who may not have a view, let's talk best of from each of your perspectives. So in other words, the best piccolo you've ever played. Anton Braun. Yep, 100%. 100% of Braun. 
the best. There's runners up, but I, if you want one, Braun. Braun, they Braun, Braun. They though, do they? They never... No, because if you've sold one, you've died. <laughs> <laughs> because you would have to be an absolute loony bin to have a Braun and sell it. Yeah. <laughs> it's they're so good. Right, it's best flute. Oh, God, don't ask me that question. I know, because... Yeah, and it changes. I do... I do it does change. That. It just, you know... Um, all right, one answer. The best flute I have ever played in my entire life was the second 24 karat gold flute, uh, 24 karat gold Sankyo I ever played. It was the one that had the 14 karat gold keys, and I, I mean, I just wanted to cry. It was, it, it did everything. It sounded, I felt the sound in my toenails. Like, it was just, it was, it was literally life-changing. It was that flute that, that really made me love high karat gold. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Alto flute. Sankyo for me, because I do love the Sankyo. My very special B-foot Trevor James <laughs> alto. Oh, that's um, really sweet. That's, that's the correct answer, right? No, 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 no there's no, there's no correct answer. Obviously, the best alto flute I have ever played also was a Sankyo. Oh, it's just, there is... 401 B-foot, and it had a 14 karat gold lip and riser. It's a special order. Ooh. Yeah, they'll do gold for you. They'll do 18K. They'll do 24K if you want. Sankyo will make you anything if you have the money. It was in Japan, because um, they do all, uh, maybe a lot of people don't know this, all of Sankyo's alto flutes, Miyazawa as well, mm -hmm. are available with a B-foot. Mm -hmm. Having a B-foot on an alto flute changes everything yeah. so much for the better in every regard except the weight. But no one plays the alto flute because it's light. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, no, that alto flute was just, um, I mean, Sankyo alto flutes in general are incredible, but that particular one was just like, so good. Um, I also, there was actually a platinum-plated Muramatsu alto flute that I tried, and I, I think it might actually be Sharon Bezalis, but it was just also unreal. The Japanese, in general, I have to say, really, really nail alto flutes. Uh, Miyazawa alto flutes are incredible. Yeah. Altus alto flutes are incredible. Um, yeah, but that, that Sankyo was just... Ugh. So if we move on to bass... I know we're getting into the Katata territory here, but for me, that's the Sankyo, Sankyo base. base they have now. Unbe unbelievable. Before the existence of the Sankyo base, I would have said the best bass flute I have ever played in my life was a Kingma. It was an open hole Kingma. Um, it was Gareth McLaren's space, oh. actually. It was just really, really stunning. Um, Katatas are also incredible. But the Sankyo base just, oh, 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 it's so good. But it's so expensive. Yeah, but it is. But that sound, no, it's the sound is just, it's like a bassoon and the cello had a baby. Um, yeah, and it, oh, yeah. And the nanny it's, was a baritone saxophone. Like, it's just, because bass flutes, right, the, the, the sort of stereotype of the bass flute is the sound is very small yes. and very fluffy and hard to project. Not with the, not with the Sankyo. Absolutely not. I would endorse it. It is by far the best bass I've ever played in my yeah. life. Yeah, Absolutely hands down. Stunning. Hands down. But if you can't afford a thank you, get a TJ. <laughs> yeah. yeah We've we got new ones coming out next year. Yeah. Let's go on the record, everyone. You are the witnesses. I do not have a TJ bass flute. Oh, These <coughs> are going to have to <coughs> solve that. Solve that before the alto flute. Yes. Um, I really like my alto. I am going to actually maybe send it to Dave at some point just because it needs. I play it so hard. Like, I'm playing, you know, Paganini on it. Like, the. The keys, the keys could probably use a, a trip to the spa. I think we could probably do a swapping it though. Yeah. For um, new, but I'm, the new models with the 958. Oh my God, I played them in NFA. You guys, if you haven't tried the new TJ, the new generation of TJ Altos, you are in for a treat, man. Not bad, are they? No, God, they're not bad at all. Right, and the last one. Let's move on before I get too embarrassed. Do you have a favorite piece of music? <gasps> oh, I do. My favorite piece of music in the whole world, gun to my head, Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony. It is just the most luscious, emotionally charged, spectacular piece of heart-on-your-sleeve romantic writing with the single greatest clarinet solo in all of classical music. I know, I, you all wanted me to say, like, Syrinx or something, sorry. <laughs> if you specifically want to know my favorite piece of flute repertoire, um, which was not the question, but I answered the question. Um, my favorite piece of flute repertoire changes every day. So it should. Yeah. I'll tell you what my least favorite piece is, though. Anything with Wolfgang's name attached to it. <laughs> it's just so complicated. Y'all can keep it. your Mozart, kids. I, I mean, yes, we all have to play it. It's masterwork. It's genius. It's beautiful. 
I, if I never, ever again in my life, between now and the time I'm a pile of dirt, have to play either of the Mozart Concerti again, oh well, <laughs> I'll survive. <laughs> <laughs> and on that wonderful note, I do love, I do love ending up on a, a note where I totally agree. I've never been able to play Mozart properly. I've never been able to play Bach properly. When I was uh, studying with James Dow in London, we would spend almost an hour on the first two or three bars mm. of Mo whatever Mozart we're doing or whatever Bach it was doing to do with the inflections and the sound. And, mm. and for me, it was just too complicated. I That's interesting it. because you're such a, you're such a, a, a sensitive and emotionally complex person. That <laughs> yeah. I would have thought Mozart and Bach would be right up your street. No, perhaps it's all a front. Mm. More of an Iber kind of guy? Oh, I love it. Oh. That's good. I also, I loathe with the passion of a, of a Thousand Sons, the Iberic Concerto, which I am playing next year, so God help us all. Oh, I love that. I have successfully avoided it for the last 30 years, but I have finally had to just come face to face with it. I work on it every day, and at no point do I feel like it's gotten any better. No, I, <laughs> I mean, it has, but... I adore that piece. <clears throat> oh, I do not. I do not. Um, I also really, really love the, the transcription that we all play now of the Cacciatorian Concerto, yes. which is a violin concerto, of yep. course, but... Um, it's just so, so perfectly suited for the flute. I think it's just magnificent. Oh God, and of course, my, the Mercadante E minor Ooh, concerto yes. is my favorite flute concerto, hands down. Okay. Desert Island piece. God, how can I, it is my favorite thing in the entire flutiverse and I forgot about it until just now. Mercadante, Mercadante. He wrote six flute concertos though, you know. No, I don't, six. Yeah, six of them. The E minor that we play yes. is number two. Okay. Yeah, there's also an E major. Um, Mr. Mr. Sir Galway has a fabulous recording of all of them. Ooh. Yes, I want to see the cover. It's like mostly red. Um, I'll send it to you. It's actually spectacular. Um, particularly the third movement of the D major concerto. It's a polaca. It's kind of a, a three-four dance. Is one of the most spectacular pieces of flute playing I've ever heard in my life. I don't normally listen to flute players outside of work because... <laughs> well, it, it is work, isn't it? It is. That's the thing about being a flute player is I, I often go days and days and days and don't listen to things because well, I, I've just done it for so long, you know. But there are times, like, you know, when I, for, especially if I'm commuting, if I'm on the tube or the train or something, I really like to listen to, to classical music because... I don't know, it kind of, it makes me feel like I'm practicing in a way. Like, I'm engaging my mind, and because I think as musicians, we can't passively listen to music. Agreed, totally so, agreed. you know, if I'm listening to, I don't know, Sharon Besley's recording of the Undine Sonata, I'm playing along with it in my head. You know, I'm seeing the music, my fingers are sort of ever so slightly twitching along, and that, that is actually a really effective form of practice. Mental practice should never be underestimated as a, as a method. Because we can't always have the instrument out. Sometimes it's three in the morning and you can't sleep and you can't play the flute, <laughs> you know. But playing it in your head and fingering along does absolute wonders. Font of knowledge. The pro tip, pro tip kids. The ultimate flute nerd. Air, air flute, air flute is actually a valid <laughs> method of practice. <laughs> air flute, love it, love it, air flute. Yeah. I didn't make it up. You didn't, who did? No, I don't know, it's, it's a thing. Is it? Yeah. Air flute. Well, in air guitar. Oh, I've got the air guitar. It comes from air guitar. I used to do the air trombone on a plane, but... Um, that, that, uh, I don't know that that looks great, though, from sort of a, an out-of-context perspective. <laughs> it's just a little tick I had when I was younger. I'd stand up and sort of go sort of <laughs> through the trombone. Well. Josh, Josh. Right, for, I'm sure everybody listening to this follows you on socials. If you don't, why not? Come on, tell us, tell us your socials. I post pretty pictures of pretty flutes. You do of every brand, and that's what's good about Josh. It's true, I do not play favorites. Pretty flutes are pretty flutes, and everyone makes a pretty flute. You have made one of the most beautiful flutes I've ever seen in my entire life recently, and I've still not had it in my hands, and that does make me slightly murdery. Which one's that? The 24-karat gold-plated oh, virtuoso. Yes. My God, just the color of the plate. I really like yellow gold, as I think we all know, um, and this flute just drives me mad, and you're constantly posting pictures and videos of it, and it it just makes you want to beat my head against the well, wall. We don't have it anymore, do we? It's in America somewhere. Well, well, perhaps one day you'll answer the many, many, many messages I've sent you asking me how much it would cost to get one done. Because, oh, it's just so pretty. And you use really, really highly reputable jewelry platers in, in London. So the plating is super high quality. And it's, it's, it's extremely thick and it's, it's very durable. And so it actually, in the experience that I've had with the 14 karat gold plated TJ flutes, 
The plating is so thick and so even and so well done that it actually positively impacts the feel of the mechanism. Well, they only, interestingly, they only plate in five microns or 10. I mean, five microns, they say, is sort of is thick enough for them. But we asked them to do a double dip mm -hmm. to 10 microns, which is hell of a... I mean, that's lifetime worthy. Yeah. So that's why. Yeah. Vermeil, which is gold-plated over sterling yes. silver, is only 2.5. Yeah. And that's supposed to be a lifetime thickness of plating. So 10 is just, it's just excessive. I mean, but that's so thick that it has to change the sound. Yeah. Not on the mechanism, mechanism five, but the, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, because you're adding so much mass to the body. And let's not talk about the problems we've got with ruthenium. We'll do that off air. Yes, right? that's so a different the black that's a different We'll thing. speak about um, that when... No one listening even knows what ruthenium... You didn't know what ruthenium was until I told well, you. Well, no, you, you put this silly idea. That, I know, well, can we tell the people, so I... A lot of the things, this is really, this is actually super jerky of me to say, but a lot of the amazing, wonderful, brilliant things that you see on Trevor James' social media originated in my brain. Yes. And JP and I will have coffee, and I'll be like, you know what would be hilarious if you guys did? And then, like, you know, eight months later, a rosewood piccolo with rose gold keys turns up on their social media. <laughs> not, on my, not on my mailbox, mind you, but, you know, on their social media. Um, it's fun. What I really, really like about TJ is that, and you, because you are TJ, TJ is you, um, is the, the openness to ideas and just playing around and seeing what if, you know, because you, you don't occupy that $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 niche. So I really like that you have this mentality of how great and over the top can we make an affordable flute? Yeah. So let's talk about this daft idea that you, you spoke to me. and We had a coffee, didn't we? And we said, have you thought about ruthenium? And I just thought you'd made the, made the name you're, up. You're like, who's she? Yes. <laughs> I think my grandma had a friend named ruthenium. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's a great metal. It's a platinum group metal. It's a beautiful sort of smoky gray, blackish. Yeah. It's very sexy. Um, but it is, it's extremely difficult to play with. And it's extremely expensive. And, yes. Um, so yeah, we've... We've had one head joint replated twice. And, oh dear. Yeah. And what was so basically, guys, what he's telling you is that I have cost them so much money. <laughs> but we did. So, but we think it's funny because there's no such thing as failure. If you try something, it doesn't work. Well, then you learn something. Yeah. Exactly. And then what? We'll Another do, life lesson, kids. Even failures are successes. I, I would agree. Look at us teaching the children. And even if the third time doesn't work, we'll actually you see it on social media as an example of what doesn't work. Exactly. Oh my God! Like that. What was that faux marble head joint or something? <laughs> Christ alive, that was oh, a monster. People thought we'd made a head joint out of marble. It was, it was like it was a car porcelain wrap. or something. No, oh, it was, it was a car wrap. It was a car wrap That's that right. went over the top but of it. But you did make a head joint out of something that just absolutely didn't work. Yes. Right. Yeah, that was, that was a, it was a, 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 not agate, but it was something like that. Yeah. We'd sort of got a big bit of agate and we'd drilled in and yeah. dead as a dodo. I mean, I would imagine a giant piece of rock wouldn't <laughs> Wouldn't make an amazingly resonant head joint. <laughs> no, but it's like copper. The only reason we started making, I know that people have made copper stuff before, was because we had a plumber around and he was fixing my boiler. <laughs> and he had some copper piping on the floor. And you thought, what? Oh, yeah, well, okay. And he had a hole in it. Oh, David, our technical director. Have you thought about this? Oh, really? <laughs> and of course... Um, it's become a bestseller, hasn't it? <laughs> crackers. Yeah, and there's, um, to sort of to tease, to drip some, some upcoming products, there is a copper alloy base on the way in the next couple of years, isn't there? There is. Yeah. Um, Stay I tuned for that, imagine, kids. I'd imagine, because we made one, mm. which Theo Travis, the Saxon flute player, has. So he has it, but because we weren't going to launch it, because we were just messing around, we put mm. his name on it. Uh, but yes, there will be one coming next year, and you'll Great. feel no doubt you'll have the first prototype as always. Well, you say that, but <laughs> so, your name on your socials, Josh J NYC, which is hilarious because I don't live there anymore. You don't. Um, I, actually, I am going to change it at some point, and I would love suggestions on what to change it to. I was thinking just Josh Johnson Woodwinds, which is my email address at gmail.com, because um, you can only change your Instagram name once. And I think having a geographically tied name is a very bad idea. Because <laughs> I might not live in London forever. I mean, I would like to. I very much want to live in London for the rest of my life. But, you know, maybe Josh J. LDN is not the greatest idea. So, Well, well that's another podcast now because it you have this really interesting Wait, is it time life. to buy your phone yet? 
nearly. Oh, it is. All <laughs> we, right. We are, right. I will say why we are looking at my phone here is that at one o'clock, and we're three minutes away, mm. is when I can press the button to, to, to buy, buy the your new, iPhone 15. The new iPhone 15. I'm sorry. Amazing. I, I don't need one. I've got 14 on No one needs one, but we all want one. I mean, I don't want one because Android for life, but yeah. No, conspicuous consumption is the way to go. The world is burning. Why not help it along? Should we go? Should we, should we walk back? Yes, let's do it. Josh, thank you, my friend. You're always... <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you for, for the questions, everyone. That's, that makes me feel very special. Yeah. Take care, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company.